Welcome to Going Off the Record. I'm Colin Williams, and this is where I talk with the executives, entrepreneurs, athletes, and changemakers working to make this world a little bit better every day. You'll hear their true stories, their failures, their successes, and most importantly, you'll learn what makes them tick. So let's get going off the record. Hey, everybody, this is Colin with another episode of Going Off the Record. I've got a fantastic one for everybody here today. We have Patricia Carl. She is the CEO of Highland Performance Solutions, which we're going to learn all about. So thank you. I'm going to call you Patty the rest of the way. But thanks for coming on, Patty. Really appreciate this. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. I'm in good company. I've listened to some of your other podcasts and you have fascinating people. Well, I always try to one up each one that I did in the past. So let's see if we can make this the best one yet. So as I mentioned, this is all about you. Uh, we really want to hear the story and everything that's happened along the way, both personally and professionally. So let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? What's the family like? All that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I'm from Missouri originally. I grew up on a farm outside of Columbia, Missouri, which is where the University of Missouri is. It's college town. Go Tigers. And so really interesting. College towns are always really interesting, right? Because they have... Uh, sort of an element of this very obviously highly educated workforce. And the the whole town sort of fills up, you know, nine months of the year, and then it empties out for three months. And then you have the people who are there 12 months of the year. And often, you know, college towns are sort of surrounded by farm fields and, you know, rural life. And uh, I felt like I sort of had a, a foot in both worlds, because, you know, I lived on a farm, I grew up in a, a rural setting, but also a lot of my friends had, had jobs at the university or in the medical center or, and so it was a really just a interesting way to grow up. But also, I think one of the most interesting things to do is live in a college town because, you know, for a town that size, you get so many fascinating people and you get sort of culture that you wouldn't normally get in a town that size in the middle of central Missouri. Yeah. I mean, between you, me and the fence post, we have some friends. So we just moved to Colorado, you know that, but we have some friends who live down in Boulder and we just went down and visited. I desperately want to live in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> Number one, just because it's a really neat town, but uh, just the energy around college towns, I think is something really cool. I've always said at some point, I'd like to be a professor. I don't know if that'll ever happen. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, when I went to Boulder, I was just like, there's just something different about college towns. And like I said, it's the energy. It's sort of the, the difference of thought. But what a cool place to grow up. So and you went to we'll get to that in a little bit, but you went to the University of Missouri, too. So you stayed put, you stayed close to home. But tell me a little bit about the rural life. Did you guys actually like was it a farm or was it just kind of like a farm? Yeah, we weren't playing at farming. We were doing it. Wow. <laughs> there's, there's sort of like the, you know, the it's nice to have the idea of a farm, but it was a working farm. Yep. So we primarily had Angus cattle, which are beef, you yeah. know, beef. Yeah, different times had pigs and chickens and a horse and and all of those, you know, the sort of different the different animal populations that you get on farms, as well as having crops. And it's definitely a commitment, right? Because it's, you know, getting up in the morning and feeding the animals that you have to feed. And it's because they don't get fed if you don't get up. And if you don't do it, it doesn't happen. And sort of having that reliance on you and making sure that you're, you know, attending to what you have to attend to all the way to 
you know, learning to drive when I was 10 because somebody had to drive the hay truck. That's the dream. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Driving this massive, we called it Big Red. My dad had this horrible looking uh, hay truck that had this big hay needle off the back of it. Yeah. And, you know, very useful on the farm, right? But like horrifying when he picked us up at school in this thing. And so we would learn how to drive it. We were too small. So we would sort of jump up and look out the windshield and then press the pedals so that, you know, the guys who had more strength than we did at 10 could, you know, throw the hay bales, you know, get the hay bales onto the truck and all that. So yeah, it was a really interesting upbringing. Like you learn a lot of self-reliance in that kind of environment and also just sort of uh, understanding the collective and how important the collective is because we all have a part to play. I can't say that I loved a lot of the chores I had to do on the farm. Uh, you know, my da- you know, my dad would say on a Sunday, like, well, let's go put up some fence. And you're like, so. It, but, it creates character. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I got that a lot. I got Lots a lot of, of um, it'll put hair on your chest. That's one of his favorite phrases. Just what, yeah. just what a 10-year-old girl wants to hear. And, but learned a lot. And we participated in 4-H, which it's kind of, I think, a dying institution, I I think, in some areas. But it was, you know, 4-H has lots of classes that you take. You learn different skills, things that would be traditionally helpful in a more rural environment. I have a younger sister, two years younger, and we would show cattle in the Boone County Fair. So wow. My dad in the spring, you know, all ca- the calves are born in the spring. I don't know if everyone knows the s- circle of life yes. on the farm, but calves are born in the spring and we would choose one, a male, that we would then make a steer um, because that's better for, for beef, quality of beef. And then we would raise that calf all throughout the year. And, you know, get up in the morning, feed it. We had to halter train it. That was fun. A thousand pound animal and me, like it was a real showdown, you know, in the corral. It was like, it was the okay corral, me and the calf, uh, like who was going to win. And then we would show the cattle in the fair and then immediately take them over to the auction for sale so that they could be, you know, processed for beef. Talk about circle of life like that. You just spent a year raising this animal and now you're selling it, right? But then we would take the money. We would pay back my dad. Like, I think we paid him 200 or 250 for each calf. It was probably discount rate. And <laughs> Hopefully. And, Hopefully it wasn't taking you to the cleaners. It's <laughs> <laughs> shaking us down. And then we would take the money and we were allowed to take $200 for school clothes and that's, we bought all of our school clothes and then we could put the rest of it into an account for college, whatever was left over after we paid dad and we paid for school clothes. So sure. there are a lot of lessons in there, right? About like how to buy school clothes on a budget and how to, yeah. how to sort of save and how to, what you have to pay for, because you have to pay for all of the, you know, you pay for the calf, but then, you know, there's, there are also lots of other costs that go into to raising a calf and being aware of those. So anyway, it was a really super interesting experience and lifestyle because you experience a whole different lifestyle when 
you are with all the 4-H kids and the FFA kids doing, you know, entering your calf and your sewing and your baking in the county fair and participating in archery did pretty well. And um, (laughs) so what I'm saying to you, Colin, is I have a myriad of useless talents now (laughs) that I don't employ at all. (laughs) But you know what what I find really interesting about this one? I've so I have a bunch of questions, but you learned entrepreneurship at a very early age. I mean, I'm sure it certainly didn't seem like that at the time, but this is every ounce of entrepreneurship, right? Like, and so to me, it's not a useless skill at all. It's like you learned what you're doing today, running a business, creating and running a business back then. So that's a super cool skill. I've always had this question um, about raising calves. And look, I'm far from a vegetarian by any stretch of imagination. But I always have wondered, because people have asked, hey, do you want to go hunting? I'm like, it's not my thing. I have no problem eating meat. I don't actually want to kill the meat. And I've always wondered for farmers who did that, like, do you grow an affection for the animal that you then have to, I'm curious, like, I'm completely curious about this. You do. Yeah. And I can safely say that we, you know, my mom, my dad, my sister, we all really got attached to the animals that we had maybe other than the chickens, chickens are a whole different breed. And so I'm not sure we got attached to the chickens, but the cattle, yes. I mean, they're, you know, when you spend that much time with animals, you know that they're sentient beings. And also I think on a farm, you sort of learn that there's a practicality to things too. And so you sort of have to hold these two almost like opposing perspectives that like, this is the circle of life and this is what we do. And also like, it's a little heartbreaking every time to send an animal that you cared for to slaughter. Yeah. This is pure curiosity on my part. The archery thing, you probably know this, but I remember from years back that Gina Davis, the actress was an archer and like actually tried out for the Olympic team and, and came pretty close to making it. So did you ever do it competitively or was it just something that? No, I just happened to be pretty decent at it. It was just something I discovered. To be clear, I was never Olympic level. I was reasonably good for Boone County Fair level. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you grow up with, you were talking about hunting, you know, in, in that environment, you really grow up with, you know, pretty much most of the people, you know, hunt. When I think I was 12, you know, my parents signed me up for gun safety through the Missouri Conservation Society. So you learn how to be safe and be respectful of firearms because they're really a pretty prominent part of rural life. But having said that, I was never I was never a hunter. It wasn't my thing. I'm sort of with you. I know it happens. I don't need to be that. uh, I don't want to be that close to it. (laughs) That involved in it. Yeah. I spent a year in Mississippi and and this is no, I'm not casting any dispersions on Mississippi by any stretch. These are awesome people. But a lot of the lawyers at my firm would go hunting on Saturdays. And I got invited a couple of times. And the idea of getting up at 4 a.m. to be out in the wilderness at 5 a.m., with guns and beer seemed like a horrific idea to 
<laughs> maybe I'm nuts, but it just did not click with me. Now the upside is they would go during deer season, they would get a deer, they would process it, and then they would bring all like the jerky and all this fantastic these cuts of meat into the office and just give them away. And so I would happily partake in that. But just the idea, just the 4 a.m. thing was like, no, that it's was enough to. You might yes, take it off your list. A hundred percent. I'm like, I like Saturdays. I like sleeping in. <laughs> I think though that there's something about the experience of just going out into nature, whether yeah. you like hunting or not, there's something about being in nature and uh, solitude and being with your small group of friends and spending time together doing, you know, sort of a whole lot of nothing because it's a yes. lot of waiting usually yep. <laughs> when you're in the blind you're <laughs> in the yeah. you know you're waiting um there's a lot of waiting and i think there's i think in some ways it's less about the hunting for a lot of people and it's more about the camaraderie and spending time together and i think you're absolutely correct i mean the actual hunting part of it is probably if you're out there for a nine hour day that's i mean depending on how you process the animal that might be five minutes of it <laughs> I completely agree. And I, it's, it, I've always kind of likened the idea behind, like, I love going to college football games, but here's the truth. I actually like the tailgating much more than I like the actual game because that's the social part of it where you're just hanging out with friends and doing that stuff. So I think it's very much that same experience for people who go hunting. I just couldn't like the actual killing of something would probably ruin that whole experience for me, but who knows? I don't know. I mean, I guess I've never shot anything, so I don't have the experience to say one way or the other. But yeah, it's interesting. And I'm all for firearm safety. I I actually am a gun owner too, So, but just for self-defense. So one of the scary things to me is when people get guns and have no idea how to use them. Bad news. But on to other things. This is about you, not me. So you went to the University of Missouri. Did you want to stay close to home? What was the, the reason for, for choosing Mizzou? So I actually went away my first year. I went to... It was called at the time. Now I'm going to show my age. Southwest Missouri State. Herman State. Missouri. But now it's Missouri State. Oh, Missouri State. That's right. Yeah. I just made it a little. Crunched it down. Yeah. Truncated it. And I went there with one of my very good friends from high school and was there my freshman year. It was a really, I really wanted to get away. My freshman year, I just wanted to get out of town. I felt like I hadn't been a lot of places. I wanted to get out. I think it's so different in some ways today with, I can see it with my sons. It's di like, they're not like looking to run away. And I was, I wanted to run, I wanted to go. Yep. So I went and during the course of that year, I mean, it was great for me to be away, but also my parents divorced, started divorcing. So I was away. That was really hard. I think you know, I wasn't able to be there for everyone. It was probably, frankly, the reason I wanted to go away, right? Yeah. Is that like you can, whether you're fully aware of it or not, you can sort of see where things are headed. And I probably on some unconscious level wanted to just go and start my life and leave some of that behind. But during the course of that year, my parents started their divorce and which, you know, I think a lot of that happens a lot, right? An empty nest kind of as the empty nest approaches, people are sort of like, they kind of go two ways, right? Yep. One of two ways. So I 
decided to come back over the, during the hiatus between freshman and sophomore year, I decided to come back to Mizzou for a whole lot of reasons. I thought, you know, I can be here. It'll be maybe simpler. I also had a boyfriend in uh, St. Louis. <laughs> it was a little closer. It was like two hours versus three or so hours. So it wasn't like major difference, but my boyfriend, now my husband. Oh, no way. Is oh, also oh. a Colombian. <laughs> so he's from okay. Colombia. We're high school sweethearts. And so I wanted to be closer so that I could, you know, he could come like home for the weekend and I would be around and he'd have a place to stay. And so I'm sure that factored into my decision making, but there were sort of a lot of things converging that made me want to come back to Mizzou. And Mizzou is such a great institution and it's um, super fun, first of all. <laughs> yeah. Really fun school. And believe me, I took full advantage of that. But also the journalism school was there and I had originally thought about and was originally in the journalism school. And so it's just a, like a top notch gold standard yeah. journalism school and oh, wanted to, you know, wanted to have that experience. So that leads me into, did you study journalism? I know your degree is in interdisciplinary studies. I don't want to screw that up. So tell us a little bit about like why you studied what you studied and, and if it had that journalism component, I mean, Mizzou's journalism school is on par with like Medill. It's um, an amazing school. So just to be clear, interdisciplinary studies is what you do at the end when you realize that you don't have enough for a major. <laughs> because you changed <laughs> so many times that they just sort of help you slap a label on it and pull it together in a capstone essay and call it a day. So I started as an English major and was even published in a poetry and prose publication my freshman year, which was pretty exciting to me. But, you know, my parents were ultimately super practical, right? Because they were primarily, I think, blue collar. And the question they had was, who, who makes money with an English major? How do you get, what job do you have as an English major? And so I thought, okay, well, journalism is a really practical application of being able to write. And I also am really interested in people and stories. And so that might be fun. So I started in broadcast journalism and pretty quickly decided I didn't love that. It felt like a lot of um, reporting the news, like a little bit of a talking head kind of thing. It didn't feel very intellectually stimulating. Now, I think that's, I probably didn't give it enough of a chance because I think that it is, it can be. But maybe the sort of limited view I had at the time, and that's always true, right? You only have the perspective you have at the time. And I don't think I fully understood what the possibilities were. So instead of being on Good Morning America, I decided I wasn't going to do that, but I would, I would go into advertising because I liked, I sort of liked the creative pieces of that. So I started doing advertising and then I did some marketing classes but I was also a French minor. Oh, interesting. And so when I got to my senior year, the advisor just said, let's sort of pull all this together. <laughs> We're going to find you a major, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so interdisciplinary studies, it was. And uh, you had to write a capstone essay just sort of 
taking taking all of your areas and combining them and sort of serving them up in a really cohesive way, which is basically what we all do with our career narratives at some point. Like we just look backward and then figure out how to reverse engineer the story. And so I started that early with my bachelor's and then finished that and then pretty immediately moved to Texas. Oh, okay. After graduation, because my uh, soon-to-be husband, my fiance at the time, was living oh, he's there. Coming back. He's back. He's back. He never left. And so moved to Texas with him and then, you know, just started looking for and in one of the toughest job markets, by the way. I don't know if you know that time period. It was one of yep. the toughest job markets. Started hunting for a job, the kind of occupation that desperately needed an interdisciplinary interdisciplinary studies, studies major. <laughs> graduate. <laughs> so this leads into, so you go to Texas. What was the first job? And I want to tie this to the, because getting a master's in social work from the University of Pennsylvania, tie this all together for me, because that came pretty soon after you graduated. It wasn't like you took 20 years off or 15 years off or 10 years off and then decided I'm going to go back and do this. What yeah. was the tie between your first job and then going to get the master's and why? Almost no tie. It was yep. actually a tie between the volunteer work I was doing. The job I ended up getting, I think I was paid $18,000 a year. Oh, killer. My first, my first <laughs> job. Like, wow. I don't yep. know what that is today. $1992, $1993. So, but it was still not much. Not a lot of and, and I was doing marketing and PR for a financial services company and then moved into their sales arm and started making... $24,000 a year with commission. So I thought I've made it. I'm rich. I can, I'm, rich. I, I'm rich. This is it. <laughs> but I didn't love the work. And I was doing some volunteer work at a domestic violence shelter. And I was so interested in, like, really, really interested in people and psychology and sort of what shapes us into the people that we are? Because I think, you know, in the domestic violence shelter, you sort of encountered people who just said, like, I, like, I'm not even sure how I got here. Like, I don't know how all of this happened. And then I was just really fascinated by that. And I thought maybe I should pursue something that's more psychology oriented. You know, maybe I would want to run an organization that does mental health kinds of things. I'm really interested in sort of mental health and how, and, you know, how formative years shape us into the people that we are today. And how do we sort of keep replaying the stuff that came up in our formative years if we don't do the work? And then how do we help people do the work? So we moved to Philadelphia. I applied to University of Pennsylvania. I also applied to another school, Bryn Mawr, uh, which is oh, a, cool. was a primarily women's college. And I thought that University of Pennsylvania was like completely stretch goal. I mean, my grades were okay, but not great. I had a lot of fun in college. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so my grades reflected that. And you could sort of choose what you put into your application. And I chose to really focus on the essay because I'm strong. 
I'm strong in writing. It's always been my thing. So I thought I can write a really good essay and maybe that will distract them from the from the grades. <laughs> so I did that. And I what's interesting is like that was a lark kind of application in my Bryn Mawr. I was really focused on. Didn't get into Bryn Mawr. And gotten it. Got into university of an Ivy League school. And yeah. I thought, okay, there's been some huge mistake. <laughs> yeah. Did you get the wrong application? <laughs> and I thought, okay, well. I'm going for it. So I went into the program pretty intimidated, honestly, because I had never been, I always thought of myself as sort of street smart and really practical and resourceful. Like, you know, no matter what you threw at me, like I could get it done. But I never thought of myself as sort of smart from a, an academic perspective. And once I got there, I was like, a little intimidated. I thought, you know, maybe people talk a lot about imposter syndrome. I mean, I think I certainly had that where like any minute someone is going to find out that I was yeah, in Ivy League school. <laughs> and what was really interesting about Penn is that in their graduate programs, I'm not sure if it was true in all of them, but it was true in mine. I think in the business school too, they don't give you grades. So you get no grades, but if you aren't cutting it, you are quietly asked to leave. Interesting. And so people would sort of disappear under cover of darkness from our program. And I just thought, well, like, when are they going to show up at my house? When are they coming for me? Cloak and dagger. (laughs) Cloak and dagger (laughs) master's programs. But it was such a growth, a time of growth for me because because I had never thought of myself as book smart. Growing up, I'd gone to school with like the kids of professors and doctors, some of them who were just off the charts brilliant and never thought of myself that way. And academics weren't um, a huge emphasis in my day-to-day world growing up. And so I just wasn't sure, you know, how I would cut it. And it was really, really good for me because I met people in that first week who I thought, wow, these are really impressive people. They went to like all the right schools and they, they've had internships at, you know, somebody just interned with somebody very important in Washington, DC. And I thought, wow, well, I was just very highly placed sales position in town. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, you know, $24,000 like, a year with commission. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to learn how to compete. And once I got into it, I realized actually, and the challenge of having people around you who push you and challenge you is an incredible growth opportunity. Yes. And so I would say the early years I spent in Philadelphia were some of my exponential growth years, not only in, you know, certainly in the program but also living in an urban environment, which I hadn't done before on the East Coast, which was different than- Yes, very different than the Midwest. Very different. I mean, I can tell you, I got a real education on the Broad Street subway. Yeah. (laughs) I really, I sort of came into my own in a lot of ways in that environment because I realized I was smarter than I thought and I could compete at, pretty elite levels academically. That was important for me to know and to be able to prove to myself. 
But while I was in the program, I realized I certainly did not want to be a full-time therapist. That was not for me. And as I worked in various nonprofits, I found the pace was a real mismatch for me. Too slow? Was it? It's very slow and I'm really fast. And so the, you know, the Delta was pretty painful for me. So I thought, you know, I really had to reflect on what can I take? Because I'm really interested in the subject matter. But I don't love all of the applications of this. So how do I think about it? And social work is very focused on sort of person within environment. It's like, what does this ecosystem mean for this person? How is it influencing them? How is it creating, you know, function or dysfunction? And what I started to realize was that I was much, much more interested in people in the work environment than I was in their personal lives. I mean, I'm interested in that, but I love helping people become more effective in their professional lives. It feels more natural to me to do that. You know, certainly that's a a bit of a false dichotomy, uh, personal versus professional, because they influence each other. But I liked the focus on on the professional. It's funny because you you look back and you think, well, well then what degree would I have gotten? And I think it would have been IO psychology. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. I'm also pretty nerdy about assessments, psychometric assessments. And so that probably would have been a better fit. But listen, I'm not going back to school. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> are over. Yeah. and I've learned a lot of that on the job over the 25 years I spent in HR along with coupled with the, you know, the experience I got in my master's program, it feels like I've probably gotten that degree. I just didn't do it in, I didn't do it in the most linear way. Yep. It's interesting. There's a couple of things that you've hit on and I'm, I'm taking it. This is what led into the HR career. And we'll talk about that in a second, but I've always found it fascinating when people talk about really good schools or what they perceive as really, really good schools. Because I went to like this tiny little elite college in New England. And um, I mean, to be bluntly honest, I got in for football. So it's all relative. <laughs> but whenever somebody talks about the Ivy League or schools like that, and they say, oh, well, I, you know, that's just not for me. I don't think I could do it. The truth is the most difficult thing is getting in. And once you get in, math is math. English is English. Science is science. The kids probably push harder, right? Which Which drives you to push a little bit harder. But... The reality is people in those schools and programs, they're completely normal. I I was never like, oh, my God, I'm sitting next to Einstein. Like, yeah, this person's pretty smart, but they're also relatively normal. I've also seen them throwing up beer at a party like it's it's all relative, right? Like it amazes me that the people think that threshold of like, if I get in, then I'm going to fail because I'm not good enough. It's like, no, no, no. If you get in, I can almost promise you, you'll be successful as long as you put in a modicum of effort. But it is the getting in that's the difficult part. And it amazes me that people, it's that scares people off so significantly. I'd add to that, that I think the advantage that a lot of people had uh, in my program is that they came from worlds where 
people did go to Ivy League and you had connections and your parents, probably you're a legacy because your parents went to Ivy League and that was just never on my radar. And so some of it is, has a lot to do with like, what access do you have? What do you grow up with? What are the expectations? Expectations. You know, right. If not many people in your family go to college, listen, just going to college is like knocking it out of the park. But if you have a family that you're the the daughter or son of a professor who, you know, has 10 degrees, 10 (laughs) degrees, PhD, then you have a different idea of what's possible and what's out there. Yep. I think that's absolutely correct. But I also find there's an irony in when I met a lot of the kids who were super entitled and yeah, I went to public school and was just kind of a normal kid. My parents had a huge emphasis on education. That's probably why we ended up out there. But then you meet the kids who went to Phillips Exeter and Loomis Chafee and all this. No offense to you guys. A lot of you were pretty normal, but a lot of you weren't because you didn't have social skills. You had been in this enclosed little environment that was driving you towards this one goal. And then when you achieved that goal of getting into this school, it was like all hell broke loose because you hadn't had a beer in high school, right? That wasn't part of your existence. And your parents weren't really there. You were basically raised by professors. And and so once you were free, freedom was actually something that I would call a negative because you didn't know how to deal with it. And that's, I'm not making broad generalizations here. I'm just saying something I noticed out of a lot of prep school kids was like, wow, this has been your overarching goal in life. You've been pushed towards this. You've achieved it. And now it's like you've crossed the finish line. And to me, that was like the starting line, right? (laughs) Beginning. Yes, that's the beginning. So it's interesting. It's interesting to see the dynamics that those schools create. And but it's neither good, bad, or indifferent. I just find it like it's the psychology part of it, right? I find it fascinating. It is. There's a lot of psychology in that. Yep. So now tell us how you got into HR. Like I'm taking it this was the the psychology aspect of it. And you mentioned like making people perform better at work and Tell us just a little bit about that path and actually the whole HR path, because we're high up at a couple of organizations doing these things. Yeah. Right after grad school, there were a number of roles that were, you know, that I looked at and none of them seemed really that interesting. Again, some of them were in nonprofit, which I knew was a mismatch for me in terms of pace and frankly, sometimes accountability. And so I had the opportunity to interview with this really interesting company. It was sort of a startup. It was managed behavioral health care. Interesting. And so it was sort of a carve out of like a, you know, like United might carve out their behavioral health care and have it managed by this small organization. They also had employee assistance programs. But the role that I was taking was going out to various companies, all of our corporate clients, and doing training programs, doing like wellness programs. And I loved it. You're right. Absolutely loved it because (laughs) that was the intersection for me, right? Of like, you know, person and work environment and wellness and psychology. And that that was like a perfect place for me. I loved doing that job. And then as I spent some time in that role, I would go out to corporate clients and they would say things like, listen, while you're here, we've got this issue going on in this department. There's all sorts of dynamics that are happening. What do you think we should do? 
So you're almost sort of consulting. And I thought, well, gee, I'm a hot minute out of grad school. So I'm not sure I should should be asking me. But they really wanted help. And so, you know, one example was sort of the example that sort of started on a different path was a really large pharma company said, listen, we have a number of people in our legal department on stress disability. Uh Uh-oh. Shocker. (laughs) <laughs> the, the lawyer. <laughs> the lawyer in you knows, yeah. right? And when you're doing like lots of, when you're getting lots of product to market in pharma or you're doing acquisitions, like that's a burnout place to be. And so I came back to, and I thought, well, there's a lot of, we have a lot of data from their behavioral health care that we could sort of look at and try to understand, but we probably also have to get under the hood in that department. So I went back to, you know, I drove back to Philadelphia um, from the client and I set up a meeting with our CEO and I said, this is going to sound crazy, but what if I created sort of an internal consulting department and I pulled in all of our PhD psychologists and all the people that we have at our disposal And we were able to create another revenue stream because we're getting asked all the time and we're just leaving it on the table. And then your CEO said, yes. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to sound crazy. The CEO heard revenue stream and said, yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, I was 27. So, I mean, (laughs) I'm sure he was sort of like, really? So I must have been somewhat convincing. And I did convince him I said, if I cannot pay for myself within, and I gave him some period of time, like six months or a year, then we'll, we'll call it quits. And our very first project, I paid for myself for a year. So I look back on that and I think that was pretty entrepreneurial. Yes, it by the way, like pretty palsy for yes. a 27-year-old. It's back to raising the cows. That's <laughs> That's right. So he agreed and we were off and running and it was a really fun period of time for me to try to sort of build a business within a business and working with people who, you know, that my closest partner at the time, he was in, he was a PhD IO psychologist in his fifties. I learned so much from that man. Like just, it was like a whole, you know, other master's degree, just learning from him and the way that he approached things. So that's how I ended up in HR because HR is essentially consulting with organizations internally to help them improve, you know, human performance, you know, all the things that go into that attraction, selection, retention, engagement, all of those things, development. And I loved it because it's all about human development and it's all about, you know, how do we get to something like greater than, you know, the sum of its parts. So is this the, is this how we get to Highland? Is this like everything coming full circle and you saying, I'm taking all these experiences and now I'm going to build this business and this is what we do. Give us the commercial for Highland Performance Solutions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it is a culmination. It feels very full circle for me because I've had, you know, the 25 years in HR and HR leadership positions, and you do a lot of that work internally. But I will tell you, only about half of the CHRO job is interesting to me. And it's all the parts I just described, 
and it's helping organizations put the right people in the right seats and making them as effective as possible and as individuals and as a collective. Ensuring, because I think this is part of effectiveness, but it's worth saying, while ensuring that people are able to bring their best selves to work. Yeah. Because I think if you don't have that, you're leaving stuff on the table. You have to be able to allow people to function within that precious intersection of what you love and what you're good at. We can be good at a lot of things we don't love. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's probably describes 85% of people in the workforce, right? Who are yeah. good at what they do, right? They're good at it, but they don't love what they do. I mean, it's it's really hard to find something that you love when it comes to work, right? It is. But that's why people need to come to you. <laughs> that's why, right. And so we work with organizations to on organizational effectiveness, sort of all things human capital, to help them, you know, crack the code on talent and team dynamics, whether that's taking a, an executive leadership team and helping them align and improve their dynamics or their, you know, their interpersonal relationships, or it's executive coaching, or it's let's set up a leadership development program for your emerging leaders. So there are lots of different ways that you can sort of attack a human capital problem, but it's all extremely custom, right? Yep. Because every organization is different. What they need is different. How you attack it is different. And for me, that's exciting. That's I really enjoy learning about different organizations, getting to meet new people, and then helping them solve their problems. There's nothing more interesting to me than putting the puzzle together. That's awesome. All right. Well, we've taken it from A to Z. Now we do the most fun part of this whole thing, which I call the lightning round. So I'm going to ask a question. You just answer with whatever pops to the top of your head. Don't think too deeply about it. But what I've always found interesting about this is I always wait for the very superficial, like funny answers to these things. And instead what I get are typically very deep, interesting answers. It's kind of, there's a psychological aspect to this where you really do, and I was a psychology minor in college, not that I've ever done anything with it, but it does give you interesting insight into how people think and what's interesting to them just by answering these like stupid, simple questions. So so let's get rolling. Your favorite movie and why? Uh, Sense and Sensibility. See, it's never like Animal House. I keep saying I'm waiting for it to be Animal House, right? No, but Sense and Sensibility. So I old. watch a lot of Animal House, old school, all the things. I'm in a home where I have, you know, my husband and two adult male sons. Yes. So my movies are not prioritized all the time. I get outdated. <laughs> but Sense and Sensibility, I absolutely love. There's something about the very understated acting, you know, the way that women had to express themselves during that time period. And really, you can probably say during any time period in our history, no. their worlds were very narrow. And so it's really interesting how they had to create and craft their own worlds within these very constraining circumstances. And yet they were still able to do that. And I think Sense and Sensibility and all of the that genre is interesting in that way. I love it. That's really good. All right. Favorite book and why? This one's always a hard one. It is hard because I'm, as you can see, a lover of books. And yeah, they're everywhere. They're everywhere in my house. They're really important to me. 
I would say the the most life-changing book I've read was The Power of Vulnerability by Brene Brown. And for those who aren't familiar with her, she does a lot of research around vulnerability and shame and wholeheartedness. And there is no wholeheartedness without uh, vulnerability. And so if you want to live your best life, like you actually have to put it out there. That's not a one and done. That is a practice. All the time. Yep. <laughs> Which I, I subscribe to. Interesting. All right. This is the most difficult one, or it's the easiest one. Favorite person and why? My favorite person? Can they be in my family? Of course. It's your choice. <laughs> okay. Well, I can't choose between my children. Um, so I'm going to choose my husband, but I probably would choose him anyway. He's been influence for a very long time here. <laughs> We've seen it throughout this. <laughs> We've been together for 35 plus years. You know, we, I scarcely remember much before him. And I think our shared history is really, really important to me. And, and just the, just having shared so much with one other human being is, it's probably good. He's my favorite person. I mean, we yeah. just went through COVID <laughs> and I, you either find out, are they your favorite person? Yeah. Or do I want to kill them? <laughs> or do <laughs> I agree with it? <laughs> or do I bury them in the backyard? I came out of COVID. No, completely reinforced my, that he is indeed my favorite person. That's fantastic. What's your biggest pet peeve? Victimhood. Oh, that's a good one. And br- that's the first time I've heard that. I yeah, love it. I, a former boss of mine had this phrase that I, I asked him about it later and he said it actually wasn't my phrase. It was somebody else's phrase, but he used it and I loved it and took it as a philosophy, but also used it for other people. And it was, you have to participate in your own rescue. Oh, that's good. That's really good. When people are sort of spinning on, and this happened to me and this, and woe is me, Certainly, we have to be kind to ourselves and give ourselves some grace for things. But like the sooner you can get out of that paradigm and participate in your own rescue, you know, the better off you'll be. And at the end of the day, and this is something that I I think I relearn every day, honestly, is that nobody else is responsible for my happiness except me. Yeah, I love it. And you could extend it to no one is responsible for me except me. Except me. (laughs) Make it more general. No, I think that's spot on. You're absolutely right. It's like, if you can't take accountability for yourself, it's fine to feel bad for yourself every once in a while, but then get rid of it. Shake it off. Shake it off. If somebody gave you, and this number may be different, but this is the one I usually use. It's I've had some folks on where they'd be like, they probably have it in their wallet, but if somebody handed you $10 million, are you done? Is that it for your career and your writing of the sunset? Not at all. I'm not sure that you could actually give me any amount of money and I'd be done because it's not, it's not the money. You know, certainly at different times in my life, you know, when you're building, you know, your financial position and you're, you know, you're still trying to, to get to your top earning years. I think that's a different season of life. But in this season, for me, it's all about how do I, and this is also not my phrase, how do I optimize for interesting? Oh, I love that one. God, you've got all sorts of good ones. I got to write all these down. (laughs) No, that makes a ton of sense, though. Yeah, I love it. Okay, last one. What's the single most important trait you look for in people? Drive. I love that. 
I love it. You know, it's interesting because I think every answer I've got fits somewhat in that same realm. Um, I think I've gotten a lot of sort of honesty. There's been a little bit of like, I don't like people who like are victims and things like that, but fakeness, things like it all kind of fits in the same thing. But drive is something that it's interesting. I'm coaching football right now and you see their high school kids and you see these kids, some of them just have this internal push that will never stop. You can see it. And some of them, it wouldn't matter what I possibly said to them. It's just not there. And maybe that changes. I'm not saying they're like lost causes, but it really is interesting to see just when people have an innate drive and they have it from a young age. So I love that. one. That's fantastic. Um, I think the ceiling is different. Yep. You're absolutely right. The ceiling is different because if you're willing to keep at something, it's like growth mindset, right? If you keep at something, you will get better at it. Yep. And it's also, I think drive is something that it's so important. I can teach a lot of things, but I can't manufacture drive. Yeah. Yeah. You raised something really interesting. So I've been into martial arts for a while and I've always loved the phrase that a black belt is nothing more than a white belt who never quit. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good one too. Right. And it's so true. It's It's not, you don't have to be the most talented person. Certainly some are, but some of them aren't talented at all. And it's just, they have just worked and worked and worked and, and through all the trials and tribulations and getting their asses kicked, they just keep motoring through it and they show up day after day after day. And if you do that, you will reach the finish line. It's, I look at this as some of the toughest points in my life. I tell myself, you just take one step forward today. If you take one step forward today and one step forward tomorrow, you will reach the finish line. But when you stop walking, you won't. It's that simple. So this was fantastic. Thank you so much, Patty, for being on. Uh, everybody check out Highland Performance Solutions if you need help in your organization, anything people. But thank you so much. I honestly appreciate being on. And as I grow this podcast, I like to tell people, as we learn and do more, I'd love to have you back on. We can revisit everything and see what's happened. This was so much fun, Colin. Thanks so much. My pleasure. 